It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And bloom. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a cacophony of caution in a truly crazy world. Oh, it's getting crazier. And crazier and crazier. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of DoomandBloom.net, where you'll find over 900 post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Nurse Amy. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. Well, that is Awesome. You are an awesome person and the hostess with the mostest, I have to say. Our mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. We are the courageous couple just here to help you keep it together, even when everything else falls apart. Well, I just want to mention something. If you hear strange sounds in the background, we have the bird in the room with us. Yes. And I just heard the bird go... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Good. The bird should <laughs> agree with us. Absolutely. Our bird is an African gray parrot. His name is T.D. Bird. It stands that for that... Darn. Darn, I guess, or something like else. Okay. Bird. Darn. darn. <laughs> and uh, he, is, he has been with us for, gosh, almost 30 years. He's listening. What a bird. All right. Hey, hey friends bird. and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a pernicious parrot, we have. Ah, there you go. I'll say. Our attorney <laughs> says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and her Sammy and listen to this. Well, just to be clear, I'm the one who sustained injuries from the bird, not you. Well, I have. It's, bond- it's bonded with you. <laughs> Everybody else, not so much. All right, so all information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and her Sammy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice. For anything other than post-apocalyptic settings, no contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is, or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and nurse Amy strongly urge their audience yes, to Amy. seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when the hospital isn't next door, what are you going to do to help your loved ones when they're in trouble? In a major disaster, you just might be the end of the line when it comes to your family's health. So activate. The bird just said okay. (laughs) So activate some of those neurons in your noggin and learn what to do for injuries and illness in a disaster. 
Isn't it just common sense to get some supplies and maybe a solid medical kit? What better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues when the you-know-what hits the fan, and they're designed by an actual doctor. I am indeed an actual doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner, the lovely creature on my right. <laughs> Compare them for content, quality, and cost. I dare you with anybody else's stuff, and you'll agree our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. Hey, what's what, Patriot? You had to mispronounce that a little bit. I do. We learn as much from you as you do from us, probably a whole lot more. So why not connect with us? It's easy. Here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Email us by drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages you can like, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. Mm-hmm. And you also have a personal Facebook, which um, I tend to answer we... a little bit quicker, I guess, because it's the first thing that shows up on Facebook is Joe Alton, MD. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's all for the Facebook. That's Twitter what... is at Prepper Show. And I am actively tweeting. Yes. I know it's a miracle. <laughs> yes, you've been adding a lot of interesting <laughs> tips or to do your supper kind of stuff. I am. Kinda, I'm you proud know, of you. Sort of... Um, Household tips, uh-huh. medicine tips. You are the bomb. Get better tips, stay Absolutely. well tips. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's been kind of fun. Let's see, what else do we have? Um, we have the Twitter, we have the Facebook. Oh, our YouTube channel. That's really growing. That's Yay. right. Yes, it is. Um, we have, it's DR Bones Podcast. That's right. Is you. the um, YouTube and it's uh-huh. very easy to find. We also find it at DR Bones, Dr. Bones, or Nurse Amy, and Nurse Amy. Yes, and mm-hmm. Nurse Amy, absolutely, that one too. And that's about it for our social media. We do have a LinkedIn, which some people like to do. Yeah, you I don't can. think a lot of people are really, don't they don't really actively chat on LinkedIn. No, it's no. more of a business kind of thing. So you'll find and, us on LinkedIn, we'll find us on Google+. Plus. Uh, Wait, and, you just changed our LinkedIn to, like, our normal names. Yes, so you can find it on uh, Joe Alton, MD, and Nurse Amy. And Joe Alton, MD, Amy Alton, ARMP, which is, like, the first time I've ever seen two names on a LinkedIn well, account. But... And you have to, well, you have to do that as the first name. Yes. <laughs> Joe Alton, MD is His the first, first name, name and, and the last name is Amy, Amy Alton, ARNP. That's right. <laughs> That's very That's... funny. And, of course, we have the Survival Medicine Hour, which you are listening to. And, and of course, our other second podcast, sort of a current events podcast, a lot of fun for us. It is uh, American Survival Radio at americansurvivalradio.com. It's produced through Genesis Communications uh, Network, gcnlive.com. You'll find us there. Uh, And we're also broadcast from a number of different Channels, KPJC, Relevant News Talk Radio, and from Salem, Oregon, uh, Lubbock, Texas, KRFE, uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, KFAR, and, and a new TIMB, way. yep, Internet Radio. That one's also in Texas. Right, and you also find us on Prepper one. Broadcasting Network and a lot of other Prepper-type stations, which is our, I guess, our core audience. And so you'll find, you'll find us there. And, of course, you will find us when Justin traveling the country. Yes. We're going to be from Vermont to Oregon this year, except it's not Oregon, it's Oregon. Oregon, oh, Oregon gun. Gin. Uh-huh. Like <laughs> not, gin. Not gin. 
Or, or again. again. Okay, Sorry, not again. origin. There you go. <laughs> Wait, and let me just say the dates. Um, let's see. May 6th and 7th is near Asheville, North Carolina, and that's the Mother Earth News Expo. And that is huge, folks. That's all about homesteading. You're interested in learning any topic you could possibly think about from raising cows and chickens to bees and, of course, medical supplies for storage. That's right. And use in case you get hurt. Then we will be in Dallas, Texas. Actually, Irving is the little town. It's right next to the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport at the Irving Convention Center. That's the Self-Reliance Expo. That is the 26th and 27th. And no, that's not a mistake. It is a Friday-Saturday show. And we will be putting on a suture class on Friday in the afternoon. I believe it's 2 or 3 o'clock. But you can find that on the classes page of Doom and Bloom. Then two weeks later, we're going to be in Burlington, Vermont. That's right. The first time we've been in Vermont. Yeah, that's the 10th and 11th of June. That's that's another Mother Earth News Fair, I think. That's the Saturday and Sunday. And then at the end of June, the 24th and 25th, we will be in Ohio. And it's had a few different names, but I think he's calling it now the Ohio Prepper Survival Expo. And it's put on by Oath Keepers, isn't it? Well, he's a member of Oath Keepers, and that is, uh, I guess, like a big sponsor of it. And well, the Ohio Oath Keepers. Well, we're glad to uh, support Oath Keepers, and uh, we hope that you'll join us at one of these shows. Uh, you can either take one of our classes or, or come to see one of our just, free lectures or just yeah, come by and say hi. Or, or if you, you're looking for a medical kit, we'll have all sorts of... Your lectures are, on, your lectures are on Saturday, usually, usually around 12 or 1 o'clock. Okay. And... Uh, Although you are speaking at Mother Earth News, and I don't remember the date and time for that one, but you are slated to speak there also. Wow. Which is actually pretty hard to get into. They're very picky about who speaks at at the Mother Earth News, which I love because that means that, you know, probably the people that you're hearing know what they're talking about. You have to apply to speak. Well, I hope so because I'm speaking, so I hope I know what I'm talking about. Well, you do. By the way, guys, you're, you would do us a tremendous favor by following our Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, other social media outlets, and we do appreciate it. We oh, do. And let me just mention the Twitter again, at Prepper Show. Oh, I just wanted to mention that we were just in the Florida Keys. Yes. I, I have some cool little videos you uh-huh, want me to yep. put on Facebook, right? Yeah, yeah. You caught uh, some very pretty fish oh, there. Oh, and that was we, so much fun. And we caught and released them. We weren't, didn't, uh, actually, the fish that we caught really weren't uh, good eating particularly. No, we have a catch and release program. Yes, that's <laughs> right. So, so back they went, and they're happily <laughs> swimming, hopefully, in yes. uh, in their home waters. Yes. Now, we were going to do some deep sea fishing, but the, it was just a little choppy. Yeah, a little too choppy. A little we too choppy. We wanted to enjoy it and not uh, be heaving over the side. Oh, so. my gosh. We went on a glass-bottom boat for your birthday yep. week in uh, January. And how many feet do you think those seas were? Oh, my gosh. Six feet. I was going to say six, six Yeah, Ridiculous. six, seven feet. Ridiculous. The glass-bottom boat <laughs> was literally shifting from side to side, listing yeah. almost <laughs> sideways. Yeah. That was the scariest thing. Almost right. everyone was sick. I reminded it reminded me of a uh, carnival ride. Oh wait, we also saw manatees. Oh yeah, we <gasps> saw a newborn manatee. Oh my gosh, 
a, at it a was a marina, marina right and there was mm-hmm. a, a lady who walked by and she was very nice and very chatty and she told us that the baby was three days old. Yeah. It, and at, the mama was huge. Oh, yeah. She must have weighed 800 pounds, 1,000 pounds. Absolutely. Maybe. Huge. A big, I didn't even know manatees got that big. But she had some scars on her back, which is very sad. And I think most move, manatees do, actually. They move so slowly. It's yeah. really sad. They can't sad. get out of the way of But the they water, were tucked in a marina next to some mangroves and seemed very protected. But the baby was so little. Oh, it was so cute. When she says little, it probably weighed about 50, 60 pounds. No, you think that much? (laughs) Well, that's a pretty solid animal is all I got (laughs) to say. Well, I wish the baby manatee all the best. So we enjoyed that greatly. Uh, Let's see what else. Also, we spoke a little bit about Extac and its limitations, we think, on with regards to survival settings. But we did get somebody who actually wants to go on the show and talk a little bit about the goods and bads and the goods mostly of Extat. And it'll be interesting to see whether it is useful from the standpoint of a survival scenario as opposed to a, a situation where you can actually stabilize and evacuate people. And so we're going to have... He's going to bring us the up-to-date information. That's right. And so we're going to be hopefully hearing from somebody with regards to Xstat and see what see if he can tell us a little bit that maybe we there's maybe there's something we don't know about. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. We learned every day something, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, every day they're testing new things and they're doing new trials. And who and knows? Listen, I'm... I have an open mind. mind yes. Absolutely. Bring it on. In fact, folks, if we say something that you think is negative or you might have an alternate opinion, please don't We're be happy a, to hear it. Please don't be afraid to write us. We're not ogres. We're not like, oh, we're going to fight with you. No, not at all. We're totally happy to listen. <laughs> if you cannot listen to other people's opinions, you cannot be a good health care provider. Because that's the whole point. When a patient comes in, you have to listen to them. And you have to ask the right questions and you have to get the information. And just because they answer a couple questions doesn't mean you know the entire picture. Absolutely. So, we're always open to learning new things and finding out new angles. So feel free to write to us if you have something you want to share with us. In fact, you know, we're going to invite this guy onto the show and um, record an interview absolutely soon and let him say his piece. And so if you guys have something you want to talk about too, Something interesting, something you know, something we've never talked about, something that you feel that you've you've studied or have experience with, please feel free to write to us. We're always happy to have guests on the show. Remember, we'd like it to be about survival medicine, though. On yes. This okay. <laughs> now, speaking of survival. That is a theme here. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. You know, in survival settings, it's pretty reasonable to assume that you're going to be performing activities that aren't part of your routine in normal times. That I, I often mention chopping wood for fuel as an example with regards to this. And so when you're doing stuff that which, to which you're really not accustomed, guess what happens? Injuries can happen. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you need to have eyewear. You have need hand protection, maybe foot protection, things like that. 
So you don't chop off your toes, for example, if you're chopping, chopping wood. Now, of course, an ounce of prevention, that's always worth a pound of cure. And I think that it's important to have things that may help you nip infections in the bud. It might be difficult to envision that a simple cut could turn life-threatening, but you have to remember the wounds that you're going to incur in a survival setting are going to be pretty dirty. They're contaminated with all sorts of germs and microbes and all sorts of stuff. And today we have antibiotics that can nip infections in the bud. But in, there's going to be a lot of situations where modern medicine isn't available. We talk about a lot of those things. And these wounds become problematic in those kinds of situations. You know, if an infection enters the bloodstream, things can go downhill pretty quickly. So, by the way, I realized this many years ago when I saw the History Channel special. It was called After Armageddon. And in, in that program, a family was escaping some unmentioned society ending event. You might have seen it. And you follow their trials and tribulations. They finally find some kind of community that allows them to join them. And they start doing some activities of daily survival that I just mentioned. So the family of the uh, family Potter uh, Familias, as they say, the father of the family, a, a paramedic, cuts himself doing some gardening chore or something like that. It gets infected. So he looks to the community's medical supplies for some antibiotics, and surprise, surprise, there ain't any. So he sits there, watches the infection spread, get worse and worse, and it finally kills him when it, heads, it hits the bloodstream a few weeks later. And so that's why I started talking about antibiotics you can stockpile in your medical storage without a prescription, like fish and bird antibiotics. And that's how most of you guys out there know me as the first doctor who was willing to write about these items and their usefulness when there isn't a functioning modern medical system. So a while ago, I did a series of articles and videos on antibiotics, and I talked about popular drugs like amoxicillin, doxycycline, Cipro. You'll find them on YouTube. You'll find them on the website. You'll find them, of course, in the book, uh, our book, The Survival Medicine Handbook, and other, many other, actually, that uh, we talk about that you can find in both aquarium and avian versions. Now, these are available in capsules, tablets, they, they're identical to those provided for human use, even down to their identification numbers. And I think that the wise medic should have some of these tools in the medical woodshed for when, you know what, hits the fan. Now, this doesn't mean that you should be using them in normal times. Remember, it's illegal and punishable by law to practice medicine without a license. And if it's, that means that if modern medical professionals and facilities exist, you really should seek them out. Now, last week I discussed some animal antibiotics that aren't quite as clear-cut in terms of their usefulness in survival situations. I mentioned the dog and cat antibiotic Clavamox, which is amoxicillin clavulanic acid or Augmentum, a very useful antibiotic for humans, certainly. But I looked at Clavamox, and I found that it was just difficult to figure out dosing. It's a dog and cat antibiotic, and there are very few of these dosages that pertained to the size of a human, adult human. They're basically for animals that are 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds. And so since the dosing was so difficult to figure out in many cases, I didn't recommend that one. But I will talk about a family of antibiotics that I think is good to go for survival settings. And they're called sulfonamides or sulfa drugs. Now, sulfonamides act to inhibit an enzyme involved in bacterial folate synthesis. Now, that folate is an essential part of the production 
of bacterial DNA. So sulfonamides have the ability to do this. Now, interestingly enough, that doesn't kill the bacteria, and that's what's called bac being bacteriostatic. Uh, some bacteria do directly kill bacteria. Those are known as bacteriocidal. That means, uh, well, I mean, just think homicidal. That it kills uh, whatever it is that it's trying to kill. Now, sulfonamides, although they don't kill antibiotics, they do significantly inhibit their growth and multiplication. You stop a bacteria from multiplying, well, eventually that leads to the elimination of the bacteria from the body, right? Now, sulfonamides, these were available even before penicillin, and they're credited with saving the life of tens of thousands of people during World War II, including that, believe it or not, of Winston Churchill and even the son of FDR Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the American president during the Civil War. As a matter of fact, soldiers' first aid kits oftentimes came with sulfa pills or powder. You even poured the powder into dirty wounds, and of course they were all dirty. Imagine how many infections were prevented in bullet wounds and shrapnel as a result. A, a very useful drug. E, oh, even the parrot agrees. I hear the parrot agreeing with me. Now, there's a specific version that comes in a veterinary equivalent uh, that's called bird sulfa or fish sulfa, and that is sulfamethoxazole trimethoprin. Now, that's not one antibiotic. It's actually two antibiotics in the sulfa family. Sulfamethoxazole is one. Trimethoprim is another. And they come always in a certain ratio, five times five parts of sulfamethoxazole to one part of trimethoprim. And it's a combination of two medications. They're both in the sulfa family. And this drug is actually pretty well known in the U.S. You probably know it by its brand names, Bactrim and Sulfa, I mean, and Septra, excuse me. And if you're uh, one of our British friends, you might recognize it by the name Clotrimoxazole. It comes in two veterinary equivalents I mentioned already, fish sulfa and fish sulfa and bird sulfa, and it comes in a stronger version, fish sulfa forte and bird sulfa forte. And this is sort of an unusual veter uh, antibiotic because it's two antibiotics in one, and the two antibiotics seem to work synergistically. In other words, that the effect of both of them taken together is more than if you took each of them alone. Sulfa methoxazole trimethoprim uh, is effective in a treatment of a lot of different bacterial diseases, uh, some uh, upper and lower urinary tract infections, for one, like chronic bronchitis, uh, pneumonia, uh, kidney and bladder infections, uh, very commonly used for that, especially the brand name, human brand names, Bactrim and Septra, commonly used for urinary tract infections. It's useful in ear infections, especially in kids. Uh, it actually will treat cholera and other intestinal infections caused by E. coli, Shigella bacteria, which is Shigella is a common cause of dysentery, uh, certain skin and wound infections, including MRSA. I mentioned um, that's important, MRSA. So it will actually treat MRSA infections. And I mentioned that in World War II that they actually poured sulfa powder onto wound infections. Uh, traveler's diarrhea, it's useful for that. And it actually treats acne as well. Now, the usual dose in adults is going to be sulfamethoxazole 800 milligrams and trimethoprim 160 milligrams, and you take that twice a day for most of the things that I just mentioned. Now, it's used for 10 days, and that's very important to use it for 10 days, except for traveler's diarrhea, where you probably can get away with using it for about five. Be sure to have enough of this stuff 
to complete the entire course of therapy because if you don't, you may kill most of the bacteria, but some bacteria may survive, and that bacteria, what doesn't kill them, makes them stronger. They may become resistant. Now, for pediatric patients with urinary tract infections or acute otitis media uh, ear infections, is about 40 milligrams of sulfamethoxazole and 8 milligrams of trimethoprim per kilogram of body weight per 24 hours. You give that in two divided doses every 12 hours and do that for 10 days. Remember that one kilogram is about 2.2 pounds. So once you get beyond being, I guess, a toddler, I mean, the dosages that you'll find uh, the this antibiotic come in in fish sulfa or bird sulfa will actually be just about right. Now, one thing that's very important, this is medication this is not a medication that should be used in two, uh, kids or infants that are two months old or younger. And in rat studies, the use of this drug was seen to cause birth defects. Therefore, we do not use it during pregnancy. Now, you may say, well, what does it do during human pregnancies? We actually don't know because, as you can imagine, for obvious reasons, you don't see a lot of scientists experimenting on human pregnancies to see if they'll come out wrong or not. So that is a very, very important thing to know that most of the studies that uh, most of these recommendations not to use the drug is not really based on human pregnancies, based on what has happened in animals. It's also important to know that uh, sulfamethoxazole trimethoprine and other sulfonamides are known to cause allergic reactions. Actually, is probably as common as penicillin reactions, and you may know somebody who's allergic to sulfur drugs. These reactions are usually uh, rashes, uh, hives. Some people get nauseous uh, or vomit as a result. There are, however, worse versions of this, and the worst reactions can cause disorders in your blood, and can cause skin damage, liver damage, pancreatic damage, so if you have any of these problems, you have any conditions relating to these organs, you definitely should avoid the drug. Now, an allergy to sulfur drugs is, as I said, common as penicillin, but it's not the same allergy as to penicillin. Those people that are allergic to penicillin usually can take sulfur drugs. I guess it's possible to be allergic to both. That would be, I, I would think, a rare, relatively rare occurrence, but... Just because you're allergic to one doesn't mean that you're going to be allergic to the other. And so if you're allergic to penicillin, you probably can take sulfa drug as an antibiotic. Uh, the main thing, I think, that although I talk a lot about antibiotics and how I believe that they will prevent some deaths, of some avoidable deaths in survival settings, that antibiotics, it's important to know that antibiotics are not candy. I mean, they've got to be used wisely. They only should be used when absolutely necessary. The overuse of antibiotics, and this mostly occurs in livestock, by the way, 80% of the antibiotics used in the U.S. are used on livestock, but the overuse is responsible for an antibiotic resistance epidemic, and so they must be used very wisely. I have articles specifically on how to do that in our book and also on the website. But if you have them in your medical storage, you have an additional tool in the medical web website, and it might prevent you from experiencing some headaches and maybe even some heartaches if things really get bad. Remember my criteria for these drugs. When I, decide, when I look at a veterinary drug, a aquarium drug or an avian drug or whatever kind of 
veterinary drug. The criteria are the drug has to have only one ingredient. That's the antibiotic itself. Um, can't be anything there that makes your scales shinier or your fins longer or your feathers brighter. Uh, the drug must be produced in human dosages. And the ones that I recommend are only produced in human dosages. For example, amoxicillin uh, equals fish, uh, 250 milligrams equals fish mox. Uh, amoxicillin 500 milligrams, that's the same thing you'll find in fish mox forte. The veterinary drug has to be identical in appearance to a human antibiotic made by at least one pharmaceutical company, and that's down to the identification numbers on the capsule. That proves to me that they are made from the same batch and they're just distributed to veterinary and uh, uh, medical supply companies. And remember, the drug must be available in veterinary form without a prescription to be useful for the general public to be able to get their hands on it and to stockpile them in quantity for true survival settings. Remember that this is only for true survival settings. So this is what I think is very useful. And, we, and of course, you know, we talk about antibiotics that are especially useful for urinary tract infections. The sulfur drugs are certainly one of those. But there's also an herb that has been used for the same purpose. And Nurse Amy here is going to tell you about that. Absolutely. Well, we've been talking about sulfa drugs that are useful to cure, like you said, urinary tract infections. But there's an herb, yay, that has been used for the same purpose. It's uva ursi, and that's U-V-A-U-R-S-I. Honey, you want to pronounce the Latin name for it? No, not in the <laughs> least. <laughs> You're better at that than I am. It's actually Arctostaphylos uva ursi. There you go. Very good. Uh, also known as bearberry because, of course, bears like eating the fruit. It's been used medicinally since the second century, and Native Americans used it as a remedy for, guess what, urinary tract infections. In fact, until the discovery of the sulfa drugs we were just mentioning and other antibiotics, uva ursi was a common treatment for bladder-related infections. It is a low-growing evergreen shrub with creeping stems that form a dark green carpet of leaves. It can grow about 20 inches in height. The plant has small, dark, fleshy, sort of leathery leaves and clusters of small white or pink bell-shaped flowers. It blooms really from pretty, by the way. Yeah. Uh, it blooms from April to May, which is kind of a short season, and produces a dull orange berry. The plant grows abundantly throughout the northern hemisphere from from Asia to the United States. Through modern day scientific research in test tubes and animals, researchers have discovered that Uva Ursi has the ability to fight infection and, several compounds. Yeah, right? because of several things inside of them, including arbutin and hydroquinone. The herb contains tannins, which have astringic effects. We've talked about astringic herbs before, helping to shrink and tighten mucous membranes in the body. In turn, that helps to reduce inflammation and fight infection. Today, uva ursi is sometimes used to treat urinary tract infections and cystitis, which is inflammation of the bladder lining. One preliminary study found that uva ursi, when combined with dandelion root and leaf, helped prevent recurrent 
urinary tract infections. Now, I just want to say that that's this, really important. That this stu- these studies were done at the University of Maryland Medical Center, so this is not a fly-by-night right. or just somebody that sells Uvarsi that says that they did the study. It is the University of Maryland Medical Center, which is pretty amazing because there's not a lot of university studies of herbs. Because they don't make money off of it. They don't have some drug company representing and saying, hey, study this for us so we can sell it. But uh, here's the dosage. Uva Ursi has been used in doses of up to 10 grams of leaf daily, which is equivalent to about 400 to 840 milligrams of the Arbutin. The higher doses tend to turn the urine a green color. So don't yeah. be alarmed. You're not turning ah! green. <laughs> Your urine might turn green. Which is funny because some of the products that you can buy over the counter in drugstores to help get rid of urinary pain can turn your urine a funky color. Mm-hmm. A blue. Yes. A right. bright blue, blue or, or an red, orange. Orangey red. Orange. Right. Yeah. And be careful, folks, because that will stain. <laughs> but as a precaution, Uva Ursi can be toxic, okay? One of the chemicals can cause serious liver damage, so be really, really careful. Ingestion of large doses has resulted in ringing of the ears, nausea, vomiting, cyanosis, which means your fingers or toes might turn blue and have a lack of oxygen. Right. Convulsions. It just gets which worse. Is from another there. word for seizures. And gets worse. For collapse there. and even death. In pregnancy, Uva Ursi can cause uterine contractions, which is a bad thing, folks. You do not want to go near this herb. I was going to say medicine. Yep. If you are pregnant, it possibly could lead to miscarriage or even preterm labor, premature sure. labor. Which, that's all bad. Conventional medicines like sulfa drugs have fewer risks and are available to treat urinary tract infections. Like sulfa drugs. Exactly. Now, researchers believe the herb works best when a person's urine is alkaline since acid destroys its antibacterial effect. Uva Ursi works best at the first sign of infection. Don't let this go and, bad. And for, so do a lot of antibiotics, too. Yeah, really important, especially things... That say it specifically like Tamiflu. You have a certain number of hours to get started or it's going to be ineffective. However, more research is needed to see just how much Uva Ursi works in humans. Only the leaves, not the berries, are used in herbal medicine. Yeah, and they it, can be used as a tea mm-hmm. and uh, or an extract, and uh, or I, you'll find them in powder form. Yes, yes. I've seen it um, not to to count anybody's uh, uh, points here for herbal medicine, but I really like Mountain Rose Herbs. I have no affiliation. They don't have an affiliate kick out. (laughs) Doesn't work that way, but check out Mountain Rose Herbs. I really do like their herbs. Um, I have met them, and it's a small family-run company and just really good people there. You know what you're getting, Uh, and if you choose to use it, don't use it for more than five days at a time. Right. And if you're going to use it regularly, you can't use it more than about three or four times a year, by the way. So, so. there are some limits. Right. And, and it's true that herbs do have side effects or do have adverse reactions. I mean, people, you may see people uh, selling 
herbal medicines or supplements and say there's no uh, ill effect that can happen because it's an herb. That's not true. That is Herbs not true. have chemical compounds in them, and those well, chemicals can cause glove. symptoms. Foxglove sure. can kill you. Sure, belladonna. Exactly. Yeah, so well. there's a lot of bad drugs that, quote, are natural. Right. <laughs> there you go. Um, I want to talk a little. Last time I talked a little bit about deaths from mass casualty events in, uh, let's say, natural disasters. And we talked about how you might be surprised to know that, in general, if the disaster was a natural disaster, like a tornado or an earthquake, things like that, that usually the dead bodies as a result of that aren't the cause of epidemics, especially if they are dealt with quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, if the number of dead are very high, of course, a lot of people say, well, you know, there's going to be an epidemic. Not necessarily so if you deal with them. And we talked a little bit about about how to do that. And uh, that was, by the way, in our last show. Our last show was, I think, April 1st or, April, or yes. March 31st, 2017. Well, we put it up on Fridays, but it gets replayed on some stations on Saturday the 1st. Oh, okay. So you may – so if you want to – See our discussion of that and also our discussion of that uh, Clavamox, the uh, dog and cat antibiotic, you'll find that there. Yeah, so that's actually officially March 31st on Blog Talk, or it'll probably be March 31st on iTunes. Now, of course, that's it's different if the deaths are occurring because of an infectious disease, as with uh, Ebola in West Africa in 2014. I mean, in that situation, those dead bodies were indeed infectious Mm-hmm. And in dealing with them was much more problematic than from a natural disaster. But in the United States, we have had very few epidemic diseases that have caused any significant numbers of deaths. Uh, well, most of the deaths in the U.S. from disasters have occurred from natural disasters like uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, blizzard, heat waves, things like that. I consider... Ebola to actually be a man-made disaster because mm-hmm. it was caused by people undercooking bush meat Ugh. and uh, uh, a lot of the animals remember, that are natural reservoirs, bats and stuff. Oh, but remember know, how they were cooking them? Over, over 55-gallon drums. Barrels, drums, but yeah. who knows what was in those before. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Crazy they stuff. they were rusted and nasty looking. And so, well, it's really sad. It's really sad that they're stuck cooking in that kind of way. In the last few years, we've only had, I think, a few deaths from the enterovirus epidemic of uh, 2014, which caused kids, mostly kids that had respiratory problems like asthma, caused a few deaths in in those kids. I think there was one death so far out of 45,000 cases of Zika virus in Mm -hmm. the U.S. By the way, you might be surprised to know that there have been 45,000 cases of Zika virus in the U.S., but most of those, of course, are from people who have traveled to epidemic zones in South America and places like that. Uh, I think there was one U.S. death from Ebola, but that was not from somebody that was in the United States. That was from somebody that got infected in Liberia, ended up in the United States, right. and like, collapsed on the, on, off, off the plane and wound up... Uh, Infecting a couple of nurses, and those nurses, however, did survive and did, are, are, as far as I know, are perfectly healthy now. The natural disasters, though, they do cause plenty of deaths. So I wanted to talk about what 
the government has cataloged in terms of deaths from natural disasters over more than 30 years. This study was from 1970 to 2004. Of course, there have been other disasters. We're going to talk about those since that time. But during that time, from 1970 to 2004 in the United States, there were close to 20,000 deaths from natural disasters in that time period. Now, you might be surprised to know that the largest numbers of deaths occurred from heat waves, that people wound up getting heat stroke or wound up uh, dying of dehydration, perhaps, you know, if it was a heat wave in an area that had a severe drought or people were in remote areas right. where they... Poor access to water is a huge worldwide problem. Right. So of, of We're those, very lucky in this country. We are. In most places in the country, you do have pretty good access to water. Now, severe winter weather was another big one, killed almost the same amount of people, a few hundred less than heat or drought. And just severe weather in general, fog, hail, uh, windstorms, uh, severe storms. Now, these are storms that aren't quite at the point where you call them a tornado or a hurricane or, or a lightning storm. But they did cause quite a few deaths as well. When I talk about quite a few deaths, I'm talking about close to 4,000. Well, let me ask you a question. Is this just the United States? Yes. Strictly? Yes. So these drought and heat are people in this country? Yes. That's very scary. Yes. But, of course, this is over, looks like, 34 years. So the numbers are over 34 years. Flooding, um, was about 2,800, mm-hmm. tornadoes about 2,400, lightning, interestingly, about 2,200, 2,300. I bet that flooding number is much higher. I Think bet. of all the floods we've had the past few years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Uh, between uh, hurricanes also and coastal problems New like or- rip currents. New Orleans st- area, Baton Rouge just had a really bad flood. Right, but not only that, that... This list of deaths didn't, uh, covered from 1970 to nine, 2004. 2005 is when Hurricane Katrina came right. and killed eight more than 1,800 people. So although right here, what I have here is from hurricanes and storm surge and stuff, about mm-hmm. maybe 750 deaths, add 1,800 deaths to that. Oh, absolutely. So that speaking goes, of flooding, there was also that one yeah. in uh, Denver. Right. Uh, in Boulder, a years Colorado, ago. I think sure. it was a couple of years ago now. And so that pretty much adds enough deaths to probably enter the top five, probably more than tornadoes and a little less than flooding is what we would see. Earthquakes are maybe uh, 300 over the course of 35 years mm-hmm. uh, from earthquakes. Uh, mudslides, avalanches, maybe about 170 or, or so during that time period, 84 in that same time period from wildfires, although we had 14 deaths from wildfires just in November, near just near our Again, area. There's been some huge wildfires, uncontrolled sure. wildfires in Texas, in California. They've had them. Um, um, you know, it's funny. This says wildfire. I know in 1988, Yellowstone had a wildfire. Just sure. about burned out. I mean devastated that area but i'm not sure if anybody uh passed during that time they're they're pretty good about keeping track of people in yellowstone because there's not a lot of roads people are pretty much on just a few roads a lot of it's just open space that's true so that i'm not sure if that hurt anyone but you know you just can't name them all 
It's true. If we sat here, we would probably spend the hour, even just from 1970, naming all of these problems and what month and year that those occurred and where in this country. Well, I think from these uh, statistics, I think that people look at this like a great storm like Hurricane Katrina and the large amount of deaths that occur. Mm -hmm. You know, you would think that that would be the high point in terms of causing deaths from natural disasters. But it's just so funny that it, it just the frequency, I guess, of heat waves is just so much. Right. Frequency of blizzards is so much over the course of a year or it's, certainly over the course of 34 years, well, you probably have more heat waves and blizzards. Every winter, we're going to have probably a few blizzards. And every summer, we're going to have some heat waves. Exactly. Somewhere. But you're not necessarily going to have a major uh, deadly hurricane. Exactly. Or hit flooding. Hit the United right, States. Right, right. Exactly. So that, I think, is pretty interesting. That so make sure you always keep water with you. Yes, and yes. when it's snowing, stay home and have preps. <laughs> stay indoors. Stay indoors during a heat wave, that's for <laughs> sure, as long as you have air conditioning. Oh, my goodness. So, interestingly enough, the greatest number of deaths from a single disaster, you might think it occurs in places with large populations. That's not necessarily the areas where you're most likely to die. According to these statistics... The areas with the greatest risk of dying mm -hmm. are in the South Atlantic and Gulf Coasts, the Lower Mississippi River Valley, the Northern Great Plains, the South Central, South Central and Southwestern Texas. Now, Dallas and Houston are in the Eastern or in East Texas, right? Uh, and the Rocky Mountain West. I mean, you would think that these these are less populated areas, and you would see. In New, they're not saying New York. Mm -hmm. They're not saying uh, Chicago. Uh, People that live in urbanized areas, especially in, let's say, the Northeast, have the lowest mortality risk, interestingly enough. And they think that's mainly because the number of deaths from natural hazards is small relative to this huge population that exists there. So right. it's, it's really interesting that some of these uh, statistics are really sort of counterintuitive. It's different from what you would actually think. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about guidelines that have been set by the government for workers that routinely handle dead bodies. Oh, goodness. I think that's important because there, if there is a mass casualty event, you need to know how to dispose of dead bodies. Uh, because of these guidelines, probably that's probably the reason why dead bodies in the U.S. rarely cause outbreaks of infectious diseases, even if they are caused by, even if they do die of infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. So here's what some of some some things that you should do if you are a worker according to the government. One, ensure that you have universal precautions for blood and body fluids. What that means is that don't touch them and don't get them in your eyes, nose, or mouth. Absolutely. Or whatever, whatever you do. Is there a list of what you're supposed to wear here? Well, uh, you need to use... Let's start from the top. Let's gloves, start. correct. <laughs> correct use and correct disposal of gloves, masks, and gowns. Absolutely. That, those are important. Uh, if Always bury a body in some kind of body bag, or at least in sheets, usually, preferably one of these plastic body bags that, mm -hmm. are, that are available. You can find them online if you really want, want them. Um, Always wash your hands with soap after you handle a dead body. And certainly, if that's your job, oh my gosh. before you eat. Do you eat, even have to say that? I mean, some oh of these things, God. you just never know. Oh. Uh, it, and the thing is, is that it's not just that you need to disinfect your hands. You, dis, you need to disinfect 
vehicles and equipment. I mean, you have to disinfect your shovels probably too if you're going to be digging graves and handling dead bodies or uh, yeah, and lit- a bleach solution exactly. Uh, Dead bodies, usually they don't need disinfection before disposal, except in cases of cholera, shigellosis, uh, dysentery, <coughs> hemorrhagic fevers like Ebola. But despite this, you've heard a lot about using quickline. A quickline has been used as a disinfectant, and it is also in certainly in wilderness areas will, or, or areas where there are animals that might be scavengers. It will discourage animals from digging up bodies. Uh, but for you, you mob hitmen out there, it does not cause faster decomposition. As a matter of fact, the part of the body will be preserved by using quicklime more than if you didn't use quicklime or uh, what they call slaked lime, which is quicklime mixed with water. Now, acid or lye, well, that is a different story altogether, but don't expect quicklime to speed decomposition. You have read that a million places, and it doesn't appear to be true. Uh, it is something that uh, will cause like a superficial burn on the mm-hmm. body, but it, it it won't cause it to just melt Completely disintegrate. Away. Yes, gotcha. that's right. So that's something that's important to know. Uh, by the way, the bottom of, I think I'm, I might have mentioned this last time, the bottom of every grave should be at least 1.5 meters above the water table. That's not possible here in South Florida, which 1.5 meters down and you're in water. So uh, that's Shoot, why. Six, six inches were in water. Yeah, so if right. If you try to dig. Exactly. So the one thing that's important, uh, that's one one thing that you can tell uh, that the water table is low is if a lot of the bodies are buried in uh, above-ground mausoleums right. like they are, for example, in New Orleans. Yep. So that's it. Also, uh, you always want to have about a meter of dirt on top. That's something that is very, very important. Absolutely. Well, we're running, beginning to run out of time. I just want to mention that you guys out there can make an old man very happy. <laughs> and that old man is me. And you can make your family a whole (laughs) lot safer in times of trouble by checking out a copy of our 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. We cover 150 different medical topics in our book and, of course, what to do when the ambulance, that bird just agreed to me, when the ambulance is heading in the other direction. And the best thing about the book is we wrote it in plain old English that anyone can understand. It is meant for the average citizen. If you are a trauma surgeon, it is below your pay grade. I understand. But the mindset might not be. The mindset might be something that people that are used to high technology could really use. So if you can read English, you can understand everything in our survival medicine handbook. By the way, The third edition is called The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. It is different from our second edition, about 125 pages more, all sorts of different additional topics that have been covered. Check it out at Amazon.com. Don't forget the third edition. You can tell on the cover that the third edition is different than the second edition. The third edition has a red medical kit with a white cross on it. So red medical kit, white cross on it. Says the words, third edition. Still, I see people buying the second edition. I want you to have the third edition. It's got more information. We have changed up a lot of stuff. Give the, If you have the second edition, give that second edition to somebody you love and keep the third edition in your survival library 
I promise you that you'll be glad you did. Don't forget the Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. And don't forget our other podcast, American Survival Radio, americansurvivalradio.com. And please come by and visit us when we travel the country. And hopefully we'll be in your area and we'll be giving a talk or other classes there. We really, really love meeting you guys. And uh, if you have things to tell us, contact us. And even if you don't agree with necessarily what we say, we love to hear from you. And we love hearing differing opinions. So thanks so much for listening. This has been... Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. <laughs> On the Survival Medicine Hour, Amy. Are you? What are you doing there, bud? I'm writing back to somebody. Okay. Email. See, I answer and sure emails. Enough, and sure enough, somebody actually contacted us I while we were recording this show. <laughs> well, thanks again, guys. I hope you will listen in next week to uh, Survival Medicine Hour on blogtalkradio.com. Thanks so much. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. These days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment necessary to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.